Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you are about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to have each of you attending today's teleconference on employing F1 students who are on CPT, OPT issues, uh, status rather, and their transition to the H1B status. We're delighted to have on your panel today, Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, who's been with the firm for over 15 years, and many of you have probably heard him speak before. I'm also equally honored to have the pleasure to have Anna Stepanova, who's also been with the firm for several years now and is a member of the firm and the attorney coordinating the special projects department as well. Many of you have probably heard her speak on this very topic because she's our resident in-house expert on all student-related issues, having been a former international student advisor or designated school official, as the government likes to use that term, at a major Midwestern university. Um, you know, students are one of those areas where you have multiple federal agencies interacting with each other making this area of law and making student-related issues so nuanced and so complex. Of course, you start off with the U.S. Department of State when the student has to apply for the visa at the consulate outside of the United States. Then you have the CBP or Customs and Border Protection when they try to seek entry into the United States. You have ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that is in charge of the Student and Exchange Visitor Program or the SEVP program. They're also in charge of the CVIS, which is the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System database, and of course the USCIS, which is the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the main agency for adjudicating benefits for students when they switch, for example, from F1 to H1B, etc. So we're going to discuss a lot of these transitional issues, issues that you as employers will need to understand and have processes and procedures to ensure compliance with the H-1 program. We are I-9 forms that you or your HR people need to have ready for your new employees. And common problems, types of employment on F-1 issues, the curricular practical training or CPT for student interns, and of course OPT for recent graduates, which is the optional practical training. And of course, if there are issues with H-1B employment. And all of this, of course, makes the filing of the H-1 petition extremely difficult in terms of timing everything correctly, because even if the student's F-1 OPT gets over, for example, in um, uh, the middle of the year, because of the F-1, um, the H-1B quota related issues, you could be stuck with a gap depending on the timing, but hopefully we'll explain many of those issues and how you can take advantage of the cap gap, et cetera. So let's get started with our resident expert, Anna. Anna, what exactly is the CPT and what should employers understand about how it works in terms of employing students who are on CPT? 
Uh, sure. So CPT stands for Curricular Practical Training. It's the work authorization given to students by their designated school official or DSO. Uh, and the students must still be pursuing their course of study, so they must still be going to school and haven't graduated yet. One of the core requirements for CPT is that the training be an integral part of the established curriculum. The word integral is the work of art, and uh, this is something that the government uh, is using, and it, this, is the, this is the term that appears in the regulation about uh, CPT and CPT requirements. As uh, Sheila already said, there are multiple government agencies, and uh, the most important agency, SVP, which is part of ICE, which is in charge of uh, CVIS, issued guidance or rather training uh, requirements for DSOs where they explained that uh, to be an integral means that the student would register it for academic credit or it is required by the program of study, but USCS may or may not agree with it. And we have seen decisions where USCS said, well, that's SVP requirement. We don't necessarily have to agree with it. So you will need to be careful when you employ a student on CPT, and uh, you, you need to understand whether or not the uh, uh, training is an integral part of the established curriculum. So that's something to think about. There should also be an agreement between the school and the employer. So when you have a new student apply, or a new employee rather who is a student applying for uh, employment based on the uh, curricular practical training authorization, look for something that's termed as the cooperative agreement or co-op agreement. It's in the regulations, so if the student applies for employment based on CPT authorization, this is probably something that you would need to look for in order to get into this agreement with the school. And that, that would be an important part. Uh, Generally, uh, also the student needs to be enrolled full-time for a full academic year before becoming eligible for training, but there are some exceptions. Okay, Aaron, would you like to share any of these exceptions with us? Sure. First, if the program of study requires hands-on practical training during the first year, then CPT authorization would be proper. I want to emphasize this is more than just an integral part of the party the program. This is a mandatory requirement. So it's not optional, but it says you must do hands-on practical training. Then it can be authorized in the first year. There are very few programs that actually do require such training. For example, MBA programs frequently require immediate practical experience. Second of all, if the students transfer to a new program of study and there was no interruption between the two programs, then the time accumulated during the previous program can count towards meeting the one-year requirement. And therefore, the, the, the compilation, the com combination of both programs can meet the one year and make eligibility for CPT. Can the interruption be like a summer vacation or a winter vacation, Anna? Yes, absolutely. If the student maintains F1 status and there is no interruption of F1 status, you can understand it as no interruption between the programs. Sometimes uh, 
our clients and people who call us ask, what if the student was an OPT? Well, actually, OPT is the continuation of F1. It is F1 status, so in that case, w there would not, probably would not be any interruption between the programs of study. Okay. And one, and one unique thing about CPT is it doesn't require specific USCIS approval. Um, it's issued by the DSO on the Form I-20. It's an annotation or a new Form I-20 with the annotation eligible for CPT, which is a bit unique in the fact that it gives you the work authorization. Okay, thank you, Aaron. And that work authorization you can use for I-9 purposes. Okay, so let's now move on to the common kinds of issues or problems that we encounter with the curricular practical training. Let's touch upon it. Aaron, let's get started with you, and I'm sure Anna is going to jump in. USCIS does have commonly requires evidence of co-op agreements and CPT being integral part of the program of study. So they're usually looking for both. The employer should make sure that the student's major program of study is directly related to the field of employment. An example of a problem of CPT authorization is when a student is pursuing an MBA with a concentration in IT and is performing training as a software engineer. So you're saying that is fine, that's allowed. With MBA programs, I think there's generally been more flexibility because more hands-on training is required or not really? Uh, I would say that it's actually problematic because the focus is the MBA and the person is doing hardcore software development or hardcore software. So you're saying this is actually a problem with respect to CPT because in the prior example that we just discussed, we said that it is actually okay in, that's what we just said, for an MBA person to enjoy the benefit of what we call hands-on practical training, and now we're right. saying this is not hands-on practical training. Well, if, for example, you were an MBA, MBA and you were doing information systems or you were doing management or oversight or process or organizational structure as it relates to IT, you would probably be in a good place. But if you're doing design, develop, test, implement the standard hardcore life cycle job duties, that doesn't really deal with the MBA itself. It deals with the functionality of a program. That that potentially could be a problem as not being related. Okay. And so, Anna, what is the issue with respect to uh, maintaining the full-time employment? Um, full-time enrollment. Um, enrollment. Yes. You, you have to be uh, maintaining full-time enrollment while you are engaged in CPT. It's actually an interesting point because what if you have a student who is working full-time and it's possible to have full-time authorization for CPT and the student may be in a different state performing employment so some schools uh, would consider it to be equal to full-time enrollment. You always, always need to check with the school to see what they would consider to be full-time enrollment. Uh, a very good rule of thumb would be to see if the school would consider it to be full-time enrollment with regard to the U.S. Uh, students. And if they do, then it would also work for your employees who are on CPT. But generally speaking, CPT should not be the primary reason that the, the student is attending school. It should be primarily uh, for study, not for employment. So whenever students uh, go to school just to work on CPT, that's never a good idea. Okay, so that's a helpful quick overview on CPT. 
Now let's jump to OPT. So as I guess before we do that, I guess as an employer, if you're hiring an employee on curricular practical training who's pursuing, for example, a master's program, it's not wise when the employee, when the student comes in and says, oh, I'm allowed to do this, this is fine. You, your, your antenna, the red flag must go up and you have to think whether you might as an employer be in violation of uh, the ICE rules and the CVP rules, et cetera, because there are restrictions, as Anna just explained. Okay, so now let's jump from CPT to OPT. Aaron, let's start with you. What's okay. OPT? OPT is optional practical training, and it does require specific authorization from the USCIS. Um, it is not employer, but it is not employer specific during the initial one year period that you can apply for it. It can be authorized prior to and after your completion of study. So you can either give it, get it after you graduate or before you graduate. If you get it before you graduate, then you're generally authorized for a maximum of 12, of 20, excuse me, 20 hours per week when school is in session. Uh, it's similar to CPT in that it has to be directly related to the student's program of study, and it is subject to the one full year of uh, year of full-time enrollment uh, before it can be authorized. There are some exceptions to that, though. And the exceptions are similar to the ones that we discussed. Uh, that would be also exceptions uh, relevant to CPT. It's also important to note that the student may not start employment until USCS issues the EAD because it's not enough to have a recommendation from your DSO, but uh, the government actually has to issue an employment authorization document before uh, your employee can start employment on OPT. The 90-day unemployment maximum in this case, which uh, a lot of our listeners probably heard about, would not start until the EAD is issued. So sometimes people ask, oh, well, my start date on OPT is, say, February 1st, and it's March 1st, and I haven't received my EAD yet. Is the uh, months of February, the one that they missed, would count towards unemployment? No, it's not your fault because you don't have an AD. You cannot actually start employment. And that's why this uh, you, you haven't started accruing unemployment days toward the 90-day maximum. Okay. I'm not even sure that we've explained to our listeners what is this 90-day and 120-day, which I know we do explain in a minute. But basically, the maximum a person, a student, can be not employed while on F1 OPT during the 12 months of the optional practical training is maximum 90 days. And as Anna just explained, of course, if you don't have the EAD card, it would be illegal to work. So they're not counting that against your 90-day time frame. Correct. Exactly. Um, also, per, uh, per SCVP, Student and Exchange Visitor Program, uh, one of the permissible types of OPT employment is an unpaid internship and volunteering. Formally, USCS considered unpaid internship and volunteering to uh, not to constitute employment, so that would count towards uh, unemployment maximum, but they uh, now agree that um, un uh, USCS also agrees that unpaid employment in this case should not um, be counted uh, against unemployment. But it's important to remember that if you do have an unpaid employee on LPT, his or her employment should not violate labor laws. That would be to satisfy the LPT requirements. Okay. So is this the issue that we were that we were talking about recently, that there's been a lot of debate where they were saying 
not being paid would violate the time frame, would be considered unauthorized employment, all of that. Exactly. When approximately, when was that rule changed? Because that might be important for employers to understand. It's probably been about a year now that uh, USCIS went back to the earlier position and they now are in agreement with SVP that unpaid uh, employment, internship or volunteering it is one of the uh, types of employment that would be oh, okay. That was sometime in mid 2014, so correct, maybe the last six correct. months or yes. so. Okay. But it, it's also important to know that it's not all unpaid employment that would be uh, permissible for OPT. It's only the employment that does not violate labor laws. One is labor laws, and again, like you said, in obviously also consistent with same in the program of study and all of those criteria correct. that you just discussed. That's an addition, correct. Correct. Okay. So let's jump from OPT to the OPT STEM extensions that many of you obviously are excited and probably are aware of, which is the on top of the standard 12 months of OPT that is allowed the optional practical training of full-time employment. You get, and I don't even know that we mentioned 12 months anywhere, but that's the normal 12 months. You now have an extra 17 months of OPT that is allowed for certain employers that are E-Verify enrolled. And Aaron will start off with the explanation and Anna will get to it. Well, as Sheila said, um, the, the, um, the STEM extensions allow for a 17-month extension for students who've graduated with science, technology, engineering, or mathematics degrees. Um, and it's the 17 months is on top of the 12 months that the person initially gets. So you're looking at a total time of 29 months, or from my perspective, two H-1B cap seasons, or two and a half H-1B cap seasons, as the case may be. Uh, the employer has to be enrolled in E-Verify, and they must agree to report terminations in employment to the school as well. The student's designated school official must provide the student with instructions to the employer on how to report such termination so that everything can be clear and above board. And from the employer's perspective, they must also agree to report report the termination of OPT employment to the DSO. And you should look for the DSO's contact information on the student's I-20 form with um, OPT recommendation. They have to report it within 48 hours of termination if the termination takes place before the end of the authorized period of OPT, of course. So what does it mean? Because termination may have different meanings, but for the purposes of this, uh, of the OPT termination reporting, termination occurs when the employer knows that the employee has left the employment, or if the student employee does not report for work in five business consecutive days, whichever is earlier. And in that case, you would have to report the termination of OPT. If, as an employer, you have not received the instructions from the student employee about uh, the contact information, you should send the termination information to the school and to the address and the name um, of the DSO who is listed on the student's I-20 form. And as Sheila said, you have to be mindful of the maximum unemployment because the student who has accrued 120 days or more of unemployment within the first year plus the 17 months extension 
would be in violation of their F1 student status. Yeah, so it's only an extra 30 days for the entire 17 Correct. months. You get 90 days in the first 12 months. And uh, the, 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 the part that I guess, even if the student takes an, a vacation, goes out of the country, all of those are considered as within that 90 or 120 day violation, which I think a lot of employers don't realize because they figure valid authorized paid time off or, or vacation shouldn't count under the 90 days, but guess what? That is correct. There are a lot of nuances about what actually goes uh, towards unemployment. And if your employee goes outside of the U.S., that would probably count towards unemployment maximum unless they are uh, they are performing some kind of work for you from outside of the U.S. And in that case, they would uh, be considered uh, to still be employed. And, and let's go back to the heart of why they became so strict about some of these issues. Part of it was because a lot of the issues and problems with the 9-11 incident was either two people who were on tourist visa, B-1 visitors, B-2 visitors, or F-1 students. And so the idea was an idle mind is the devil's workshop, and they didn't want students hanging around, staying in the U.S., creating problems and mischief and coming up with ways how to harm our, our society. And so, so the rules became so rigid and strict that sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense when a student is on vacation, wants to travel or do tourism around the U.S. Guess what? It's not allowed. Once the OPT and the EAD card have been issued, you're now being counted against your 90 day and 120 days. So I know a lot of you have asked questions about how President Obama's uh, proclamation and announcement of November 20th, 2014, will impact students, you know, what also how it impacts OPT and whether there's any impact by the executive actions uh, which President Obama announced uh, right towards, right, I guess, in his last sort of to ensure that he was not a lame duck president and to show that he was going to make a meaningful impact on U.S. immigration law issues. Uh, and trying to twist the arm of the Congress into passing some kind of immigration-related legislation. So as most of you know, that on November 20th of 2014, President Barack Obama gave a televised speech in which he outlined changes in certain immigration policies and rules that he plans to implement and make the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, um, work on or look into certain issues. And among those changes, he directed both the USCIS and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, which we, as I just explained to you, which is the agency in charge of student-related issues, the CVIS and the SEVP program, to liberalize policies relating to the optional practical training program, also to in broaden the definition of what is included under the STEM this, what Aaron just referred to as the science, technology, engineering, and math, and whether we could include additional subjects in the definition of STEM so that more students would be able to take advantage of the benefits rather than having to pack up and leave the country or panic if they are not counted in the H-1B quota-related issues. On the one hand, uh, Sheila, yes, that's that's exactly right. A lot of people will get a lot more time on LPT, a lot more flexibility. But um, while having all these new uh, benefits, employers and F1 students should expect great, greater scrutiny that was also announced by President Obama to ensure that they're complying with all the relevant rules and uh, 
OPT position directly related to the person's field of study, unemployment, and all the rest of the requirements. So there probably is going to be more scrutiny uh, with regard to those cases. And that's so been happening even with employers, correct. as we've seen. Okay, Aaron? I was just going to mention, so when can we expect to see all of this to happen? You know, the changes that are being proposed by Pre President Obama would really need to go through the rulemaking process. There's a proposed rule cha uh, change in the process that's been noted in the Office of Management and Budget, which is the office of, which is called OMB, uh, which is where regulation changes and where regulations or operating, how the government operates or implements a law gets put into an operating instruction, so to speak. And um, this, this change reflects a proposed change that's going to come out for the STEM OPT requirements. They're expected to have a publication date uh, around sometime in June 2015. So hopefully we'll see something around them, though you never know. There's a little bit of fluidity in these types well, of things. Well, they said that by December, November, December, January, we would hear about the H4 final rule, and everyone says it's around the corner, and now we're already in February of 2015, and the H4 rule is not yet implemented, and I'm hopefully as we speak, it might get published, but let's keep our fingers crossed on that. So let's jump to the transition into H1B. As many of you know, the H-1B-related issues, the reason that it's such a big deal for you as employers is that there is the annual limitation, the maximum of 65,000 in the general quota, an additional 20,000 slots for master's students. The next fiscal year, when you the earliest date you can file an H-1B petition, which is subject to the quack cap, is April 1st, the first five business days to work start work on October 1st of 2015. We expect a very high demand, in fact, maybe as much or more than last year, which itself was met in the first week, which the regulations allow. And I, I'm not going to go into the, you know, small cap exemption. That's for Chile and Singapore. A few, about 6,500 numbers are kept aside, but they never use it, and it's supposed to be put back in the general quota. So that's just part of the reason why there is this mad, crazy rush to go and file cases that you as employers need to be extremely vigilant, which is why we're having this teleconference to help you plan so that you can make that transition smoothly for your F1, CPT, and OPT students to switch to H1B by filing a cap case with the Murthy Law Firm at the very earliest. So let's get into, Anna, who is subject to the cap or rather who is exempt from the H1B cap. Uh, yes, Sheila. Most, but not all, employers are subject to the cap. And the rush may apply to most of you, but uh, probably not to all of the employers out there who may be looking to hire an, an F1 student. So first, we'll look to see if the uh, employee has been approved for H1B status previously. And if so, they, they, they have been counted against the cap, so they wouldn't... Um, they, they would need to be counted against the cap again. And sometimes the question is, what if they were counted against the cap and previously approved for H-1B some time ago, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe more, maybe less, and then they left or changed their status? Sometimes there is a question, uh, would they still be considered to have been counted against the cap? Yes. In that case, they will be eligible for the remainder of their six, year, uh, six years of maximum H-1B time, and it doesn't matter if there was an interruption 
as long as they have been counted against the cap before and they have not exhausted their six-year limitation on H-1B. Then um, we also may find it necessary to determine um, if the employer is cap exempt. So what kind of employers are exempt from the uh, uh, cap on the uh, annual limitation on H-1B visas? So those would include um, universities and their nonprofit affiliates as well as nonprofit and governmental research organizations. Also, physicians who have obtained waivers through the Conrad program are also cap exempt. Okay. Great. Thank you, Anna. Uh, I know I'm very cognizant of the time. It's close to 30 minutes, and we try to wrap up everything between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're just a little more than halfway through. So I'm a little concerned that we may have to go a little bit faster at this point. So what exactly is the H-1B cap, and what is the cap cap, and what does that mean for employers? So I'm going to go fast through the cap cap then. The cap cap generally refers to an automatic period of an extension of H-1 status for students that are transitioning to the H-1B. It exists where there's a gap between the time the student's F-1 status expires and the permitted start date for the H-1B status starts. Uh, before cap gap was there, what students were basically looking at when their F-1 OPT would expire, what they were basically looking at is they were looking at this gap between the expiration and the start of their H-1B. They'd either have to leave or they'd have to change programs. They'd have to do something to bridge that gap, many times meaning stopping to work. With cap gap, it allows them to continue to work while that's going on. Right. And remember, just a few years ago, before April 8th of 2008, when the Department of Homeland Security issued re these cap-cap regulations under the interim final rule. Uh, before that date, um, nobody, people had, students had to leave the country or stop working um, based on filing the case. And there was this gap in their status, which then wouldn't result in the H-1B petition extension being authorized, et cetera, the change of status with the I-94 card attached. So they had to leave the United States. Luckily, DHS introduced these regulations to make it life so much easier for students and employers so you wouldn't lose your valued employees at a critical junction during the project. So, Anna, let's get into what do CAP-GAP provisions actually say. Well, in order for the CAP-GAP to apply, there are some criteria that uh, the H-1B petition has to meet. First, it has to be a timely filed in H-1B case with a request for change of status. Timely means that it has to be filed while the student employee is still in F-1 status. It could be with or without work authorization or during a grace period, but timeliness is determined by the, uh, the, the fact that the student will still ha hold F-1 status. And then, of course, there has to be a request for change of status because petitions that are filed for consular processing of an H-1B visa would not meet the requirement for the cap gap rule. Next, uh, they will have to indicate that uh, the October 1st as a start date of employment. No other date will do. It's just the October 1st, which will meet the requirement for the cap gap. Status and work authorization for students on LPT automatically continue until October 1st or until the H-1B cap gap uh, case is rejected, including not being picked in the lottery, which we probably most likely expect this year again, or if it's denied, 
revoked whichever is earlier. SVP published the timeline uh, last time in 2013. They didn't publish anything in 2014 or this year in anticipation of this cap season. But just to give you an idea, for uh, those petitions that were receded, they indicated that the uh, uh, receding period was probably expected to end on June 1st. And then if they're waitlisted, then the uh, authorization for employment would go until July 28th. If the petition is receded and pending, not denied, not revoked, not withdrawn, then the cap-gap uh, authorization would go until September 30th. And then in order to be eligible, F1 students must not otherwise violate their status. So if there was an unemployment uh, or if there was uh, unauthorized employment, if there was online classwork, then that would not, they would, those students would not be eligible for the cap gap. Okay, wonderful. And I know it's, it's all obviously also automatically extends the F2 status of dependents as well. And something that you just mentioned, Anna, about they can apply while on F1 status or while they're on the grace period, 60-day grace period. But if they're on the 60-day grace period, they cannot continue employment if they were on the 60-day grace period when they filed the H-1. And I'm not sure we made that distinction. So just for you as an employer to be aware that if you wait, wait till the 60-day grace period of the F-1 student, they won't be able to work during that time, which, of course, is a huge negative for you as an employer. So can you clarify, Aaron, we'll jump to you now. What events would affect the maximum period of the CAP-CAP extension? So International Student and Exchange Visitor Program, or SEVP, which is part of the U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement, or ICE, is in charge of the student tracking program. And they've provided a very detailed guidance on specific dates of termination of F-1 status conditioned upon specific events. This guidance could be used as a point of reference when one's trying to determine if he or she is able to benefit from the CAP-GAP extension provisions and how it would apply to his or her situation. Let me give you an example. If the petition is properly filed, this alone extends a student's OPT period until a specific time in the future. Should the petition not be selected for receding, then the student's status would terminate on the last day of the receding unless the student had remaining time in his or her OPT card in which to be able to continue with OPT. Anna? Uh, it, if the petition was selected in the lottery, then the status would generally be extended until September 30th. That goes back to the same guidance that I mentioned already from 2013, where SVP indicated which days would be kind of cut off days for different events. And if the petition is withdrawn or denied, the um, OPT authorization will end 10 days. So the grace period here is 10 days after the uh, date of the denial or withdrawal. And then the student would have an additional 60-day grace period to change status or prepare for departure. Of course, if the uh, petition is denied with a finding of status violation, then there is no grace period. The student will have to depart the U.S. Okay, so how will the student and the employer, because we have employers obviously on this call that are curious, know whether they have the cap-gap extension? How do they know that they're safe? Do they have to request anything specifically 
while filing the H-1 petition? Well, first of all, the petitioning employer should know that the H-1B petition was timely filed, as we discussed, and if that, that is requesting a change of status and an October 1st start date. Until the receipt notice is issued by USAS, only the petitioner will know really whether it was properly filed. But once USAS receives the petition, the information in a system will update the student CVS record automatically. There are some instances where the data does not transfer properly, and students would be responsible in that case for checking with their school, with their DSO, and verifying that their CVS record has been updated properly with the extension information. You know, it's a very good point because students won't be personally notified of withdrawals or denied H-1B petitions. So it's important for them also to remain in contact with the petitioner and their DSO to keep knowing what's going on in their case. So the next issue we want to touch upon is obtaining new I-20 forms from the school to reflect the fact that the student is in a period of CAP-CAP extension and whether that's even required. And generally, if the CVIS system does not reflect the proper filing of the H-1 petition, the DSO would need to issue a new I-20 to reflect the student's eligibility for the H-1B CAP-CAP and the extension of the student's F-1 status. This is generally considered sufficient for employment purposes and for completing the Form I-9, which is required by federal law. So, Anna, if I can jump to you next, can the student who is a beneficiary of an H-1 petition, with, which is filed not just, which is filed for a change of status from F-1 to H-1, benefit from the automatic extension if the petition is filed during the grace period after completion of the OPT employment authorization? I think we briefly touched upon this as well. Yes, exactly, Sheila. As you already mentioned, there would be an automatic extension of F1 status in this case, but unless they have OPT authorization, uh, their active EAD card at the time of filing, there would not be an extension of work authorization. Okay. Just the status will extend. Okay, so that sort of makes sense. Aaron, let's jump to you now if we can. Once the H-1B petition is approved with the change of status, can the student now decide, you know what? I don't want to work for that. I don't want to be pegged into working for this particular. I would like the freedom and flexibility to remain in F1 OPT status and use the remaining time that I have on the OPT for another three months or six months. Now, unfortunately, the answer is no, because once that H-1B petition is approved with a change of status, with an I-94, the beneficiary must begin the H-1B employment on the petition validity date, which, as we said before, is October 1. The remaining time in OPT may not be reclaimed. It's simply lost. Well, it's also that uh, it's unfortunate, but students may do something if the, uh, they decide not to go through with the H-1B employment before October 1st. So in that case, they should go to their employer, you, and you should withdraw the H-1B petition. The student will then take the uh, evidence of the withdrawal Usually it's in the form of a letter or acknowledgement from USAS. They should take it to their DSO, and the DSO can request a data fix from the SVP help desk. It's all, it all sounds a little complicated because it is, and it may or may not work. So if students benefit from H-1B approvals and they 
cannot or do not want to start H-1B employment, there may be something they, they can do, but not too much. So think ahead and make sure that your plans actually reflect what you want to do. Exactly. And and the reason that you have this October 1st cutoff date is because on October 1st, obviously, the status changes from F1 to H1B. You can no longer get a data fix and go back to F1 because now it's like too late. The cows already left the barn, as they say. And so we need to try to correct any problem before the cutoff date. So let's try to wrap up because we're cognizant that you are taking time in the middle of your day to participate in the multi-law firm teleconference series. And we really, really hope that it wasn't too confusing because some of these F1 issues are a little tricky, complex, and the government keeps changing how they interpret or implement stuff. So whether it's students and recent graduates, especially STEM grads, we realize are valuable resources for you all as employers who are trying to fill a shortage in the high technology, high tech field. And since many of these students and recent grads are nationals of foreign countries, especially if they're on F1 status, they have to be, I guess, employers need to be aware of the potential issues and complexities and nuances involved in many of these issues and transitioning them from F1, OPT, CPT to H1B. Of course, as many of you also are aware, as employers, that the Fraud Detection and National Security, USCIS and ICE, the federal government is conducting more investigations of universities, of schools, and H-1B employers in recent years. And these can carry both civil and criminal penalties. And therefore, it's extremely important for you as employers to have your paperwork in place, your systems in place, your proper HR person, have a person hopefully designated to immigration-related issues if you have enough foreign nationals so that you can ensure that you're not violating laws. Hopefully, you're working with a very knowledgeable, experienced, highly um, organized law firm like the Murti Law Firm to process all of your immigration cases. It would be an honor and pleasure for us at the Multi Law Firm to continue to help you and your company and your business with all of your F1 and H1 students and all of your immigration-related paperwork. We thank you for making time, and we look forward to continuing to take great care of you. On behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Anna Stepanova, and the entire Multi Law Firm family, we wish you and your family the very best for this year, 2015. Thank you, and have a great day.